1: When you think of London and its most famous murders, one name will spring to mind, Jack the Ripper. However, what if I were to tell you that during the same era, there was another crime that, although nearly forgotten today, elicited a level of public grief comparable to that felt for the victims of the infamous serial killer? This is the mystery of two murders and two missing girls, which still to this day haunt the East End of London. And much like the elusive crimes of Jack the Ripper, these cases remain unsolved. Today on Macabre London, we uncover the story of the West Ham vanishings. welcome back to another episode of Macabre London. I'm Nikki Drews, your host with the silent G, and today I'll be taking you on a journey down another of London's grimy backstreets to uncover a macabre tale from the city's past. However, before we get into today's episode, if you're new here and you want to see more videos where we deep dive into some lesser known historic tales from London, and in fact all over the world, then please don't forget to subscribe or follow so you never miss a new episode. If you aren't new here and you regularly enjoy the show and want it to continue, please consider supporting me on Patreon. The link is in the show notes. There's loads of bonus content over there, including my monthly show Gin and Ghost Stories, where I drink gin and tell ghost stories, and lots of other fun spooky bonus bits and bobs too. I've just embarked on reading a book all about weird London history over there, so if you fancy a slightly less professional-sounding audiobook narrator who might be slightly tiddly, then why not take a look on patreon.com forward slash macabre London. I'd love to see you there. In the quiet town of West Ham in the east end of London in the year 1890... Panic struck the residents when a little girl went missing from the street she lived on after nipping out to the fried fish shop. It would be two weeks before her body was discovered, and her grieving family had to come to terms with losing their little girl. But unbeknownst to anyone from outside the area, this wasn't the first time the area of West Ham had been plagued by a strange disappearance. A few years earlier, two girls similar in age to the murdered girl had also disappeared, but they hadn't been seen since and no trace of them was ever found, until one day a mysterious parcel arrived across the other side of London, which may have just held the clue to solving the mystery. Today we begin with the story of Amelia Jeffs, A young girl who was growing into a well-liked individual, who was excelling in her studies and beginning to work on her future career, all at the age of just 14, until that was cruelly taken away from her in an instant. Amelia Jeffs, who was affectionately known as Millie to her loved ones, lived with her family at her lifelong address of 38 West Road in West Ham. The family were known along her street as the community was tight-knit and interwoven with the kids all attending the same local schools, the family attending church services along with everyone else, and many men working the same jobs together. Her father toiled away day after day as a hard-working machine man for the London and Tilbury Railway, and back at home, Millie's mother had recently given birth. Back in the Victorian times, when a mother was in confinement, as it was known, following the birth of a child, the domestic chores were often left in the capable hands of the eldest female child, if there was one, and this instance was no different with the dutiful Millie taking the reins. On one fateful Friday, January 31st 1890, Millie embarked on a simple errand that should have only taken less than half an hour, but which unfortunately ended up changing the lives of her family for posterity. It was Friday, which was a traditional day for eating fish in London, and still is for some people due to religious reasons. And as such, Millie had been tasked with popping to the local fish fry shop to get just that for not only her and her mother, but also the rest of her family. At around 6.30pm, Millie received a meagre sum of three pennies and was sent out into the night to go and procure everyone's supper for the evening. Being a good, obedient child, she did just that, but sadly, she would never return home. Embarking on her journey, Millie headed along West Road, but she didn't get far before she bumped into a school friend named Elizabeth Harmer, and she briefly paused to exchange pleasantries with her, explaining she was on her way to get dinner for everyone. She excitedly shared her plans to acquire the fish with Elizabeth, as this would have been somewhat of a treat for the household and no doubt the highlight of her day. I'm sure we all remember as teenagers being told you could have something fun for dinner like a takeaway, particularly if you grew up in a not very well-off household like I did, and that being a good start to your weekend and a real treat. Shame she didn't have a blockbuster video to go to as well, as then you knew you were really in for a good night. Anyway, the journey from Millie's home to the fish and chip shop was a mere quarter of a mile, a short distance that should have taken her no more than 20 minutes as a round trip. Yet, as the night wore on, Millie failed to return home, causing alarm to creep into the hearts of her family, and the dread that something untoward may have happened to her. Shortly after Millie had left home, her father returned from work, and was happy to hear that his daughter would soon be returning with a chippy supper, but as time ticked by, there was no sign of Millie and her father, whose initial thoughts were primarily focused on his stomach, drifted to the whereabouts of his daughter.
0: We interrupt this broadcast for a message from a friend of the podcast whose show we'd like to share with you.
1: What is it that makes us so interested in what we don't understand? We're setting out to investigate everything strange, unusual, and scary in our world. They're going to be able to scan your brain and upload it to a computer. Some people think of it as, like, the greatest victory that we could ever have because it makes you immortal in a sense. I think it's terrifying. It It is terrifying. We invite guests who bring their own personal perspectives. I mean, especially considering the fact that the overwhelming majority of UFO sightings and documentation occurs within miles of nuclear testing facilities. Yeah. They bring their own encounters with the
0: paranormal. All of a sudden, I... I feel this whoosh of wind and this ringing in my ears so loud that makes me stand up straight. And we both had this moment of, you know, maybe we should get out of here. It was a hot summer day and a hot night, but when I went into this one room, it was freezing. And I, to this day, it felt like somebody was going to push me down the stairs. A few months into living at the new house, I was woken up to the lamps being on and the snow globe music box going off.
1: Hello. And most of all, we just have a ton of fun.
0: Jacques would never eat—not a single bite. Just sip from his glass of wine. He was a vampire. He was a vampire. 100 percent a vampire. Holy buckets! My name is Ashley, and this is my co-host Lauren. Hello, weirdos. And
1: you are listening to Keep It Weird. As the hours ticked by anxiety of Millie's whereabouts turned to anguish. The family raised the alarm, desperately seeking their beloved daughter, but she seemed to have vanished into thin air. Initial inquiries were made door-to-door by Millie's doting dad, but no one had seen the girl. Eventually, Millie's friend Elizabeth gave some hope as she confirmed she'd seen the girl and said she'd gone off to the fish shop. Headed there, her dad inquired, but they said she'd not arrived there either. In the back of her parents' minds, they must have been worried sick, as there had been in years past the disappearance of two girls from the same street, who were never found, and this must have made Mr and Mrs Jeff's hearts sink. Hope dwindling, the family sought aid from the reverend of their local church, Canon Scott. Together, they approached the Stratford Petty Sessions, urging them to elevate Millie's case from a simple missing persons inquiry to a special investigation. The police were swiftly alerted, and all available resources, which wasn't many, were deployed in the search for the young girl. As days turned into weeks, poor Millie remained missing, but her parents hadn't given up hope that she may still be out there, and they'd hoped she'd still be alive and well. As the days passed, it cast an inky black cloud of despair over the local community of West Ham, and they too feared for their own safety. But they rallied and supported the bereft family, and helped in any way they could. Almost the whole of the neighbourhood was searched for any clues to Millie's whereabouts, but it was beginning to seem like she had disappeared without a trace, as there was no sign of her anywhere. However, determined to leave no stone unturned, Amelia's parents knew one area that hadn't been searched thoroughly was a collection of large empty properties which had been recently built on the main road which ran alongside West Ham Park on a road called Portway. After some coercion, the police managed to contact the local night watchman who was responsible for the night patrols in the area and he was tasked with keeping an eye over the empty properties. Initially, he struggled to locate the keys from the owners and said he was only given a few sets of keys, which meant it was impossible to gain access to the houses without breaking and entering. This meant just a few houses were searched initially, but after the insistence of Millie's dad, Detective Sergeant Forth and Police Constable Cross, who were assigned to the case, managed to find entry to one of the locked properties by climbing through an unlocked kitchen window. The house at 126 Portway was empty and dusty, and once inside, the two men split up to search the rooms individually. 126 Portway was part of a property development of 12 new houses on the street, and it was built facing West Ham Park, but the majority of houses since completion hadn't been sold and had sat empty, despite them being nice large houses consisting of eight large rooms, including a scullery and a newfangled inside WC.
0: To find out if it's right for you.
1: As the places had been left empty, dust had built up on the floorboards, and in all of the properties, it had been left undisturbed. However, when one of the detectives went into the attic room, they noticed small footprints made by a boot on the floor. Their eyes were then drawn to a path which was dust free, where it looked like something had been dragged along the floor. This dust-free trail led to the closed door of a cupboard. The detective cried out for his colleague, and the pair tentatively approached the door. As they opened it, their gruesome suspicions were confirmed, as inside, the lifeless body of a little girl was sitting on the floor, with her back to the wall staring out at them. Acting immediately, they sent for help from the nearby mortuary, who came with a stretcher and the men carried the body to the morgue. As this was most likely the body of Amelia Jeffs, they went to her parents' house and asked her father to make the trip no parent would ever want to make, and he accompanied them back to the mortuary, where he positively identified the corpse as his 14-year-old daughter. With their worst fears confirmed, the task was now to find out who had committed this heinous crime and to arrest them before they had the opportunity to do it again. In their haste to preserve normalcy and restore peace to the neighbourhood, the police swiftly removed Millie's body from the house, unwittingly erasing crucial evidence that could have led them to her killer. The tiny form of the young girl had been callously crammed into the cupboard, nestled amidst building materials in a remote corner of the loft, a place known only to her assailant, and invisible to passers-by. So now beg the question, who knew about this set of empty houses? Who had access? And was the perpetrator someone connected to the buildings, or just a local who happened to take advantage of their knowledge of the area to hide their victims somewhere they wouldn't seemingly be found for a number of weeks? All of these questions were to be posed at the upcoming coroner's inquest, along with hundreds more. But in the interim, the first port of call was to try and track down the person responsible for ending Millie's life. The house where Millie was found, seemingly locked up, had been entered through an unfastened kitchen window by the police, but it seemed by initial investigations that the door may well have been unlocked with a key – but these had been unable to be located by the watchman or the landlord and had seemingly gone walkabouts. With the body in a state of decomposition, it was entrusted to the temporary care of Dr. Gregorno, a local physician. The coroner urgently called for a post-mortem examination to be conducted before further decay would make it impossible to determine the cause of death and so one was carried out quickly to enable the inquiry to begin. As the doctor examined the young girl's remains, the chilling truth emerged. Millie's body bore the harrowing marks of a violent encounter, her innocence ruthlessly violated by the man who murdered her. Bruises and scratches adorned her small frame, testaments to a brave battle against her attacker, which she ultimately lost the weight of evidence led Dr Gregorno and later the coroner to pronounce her cause of death as strangulation, her delicate neck bearing the telltale signs of the violence inflicted upon her. In the wake of Millie's tragic demise, the town of West Ham recoiled in shock and grief. The search for her killer would consume the community, seeking justice for the young girl whose promising life had been extinguished in the most heinous of ways. But as the days turned into weeks and the investigation deepened, the identity of Millie's murderer remained elusive, shrouded in darkness, tormenting the hearts of all those who mourned her untimely demise. Millie had lived on West Street her whole life, and her father gave a statement to the press to bring awareness to try and catch her unapprehended killer in the midst of what had been a quiet and fairly safe area. Of course, it was the east end of London, so it was a little rough around the edges at times, but unlike the horror that had been happening in Whitechapel at the hands of Jack the Ripper, only a short distance from West Ham, the suburban area seemed detached from all that, and it was generally a safe place for families to live. But the mood had now soured, and people felt unsafe. This was the third girl to go missing in the area, and now her body had been found... This gave weight to the theory that there was a killer at large, who may well have been responsible for all three supposed deaths, and that there could well be other bodies stashed in the area that had now been lost to time, or perhaps they were in the foundations of the newly constructed houses. But this avenue of inquiry was very quickly shut down by the police, as they couldn't find anything to tie them all together, despite the fact that they all lived on the same street. In an interview, Mr Jeffs, the father of the deceased, made the following statement. "'We were five in family until the murder of my dear little Amelia. She was a most affectionate, intelligent girl, and was brought up in the Christian faith. This is indeed a sad blow to my wife, and I scarcely know how it will end.' Amelia went out on the night we last saw her alive, at half-past six o'clock. It was very dark and very damp, in fact, very miserable out of doors. She was sent on an errand to purchase some fried fish for supper at a shop in Church Street, and had with her a market basket, threepence, and a latch key, which have since been found. On leaving the house, she met a little companion named Elizabeth Harmer, but from that time, no one had seen her until her body was found on Friday morning. From what I can imagine, my darling girl must have been intercepted on her errand, halfway on her journey, enticed in the house, and there met with an untimely end. I shall never forget the night we passed awaiting her arrival. She was generally so quick on her errands and in every way obedient and willing to serve you, When we found she did not return, we naturally became anxious, and nearly the whole night through, we searched. The police stations, workhouses, and other institutions, but of course, in vain, little thinking that the poor girl was lying dead so close to her home. Mrs Jeffs, Amelia's mother, in the course of another interview, said, My daughter's name was Amelia, but she was generally called Millie. This day, a fortnight ago, I remember it well because it was also my birthday, she went out at half past six in order to buy some fried fish, and I gave her threepence. She took with her a little basket. At a quarter past seven, I said to my husband, Millie is a long time. He said he would go and look for her when he had finished the letter he was writing. Soon after, he went out, and upon inquiry at the shop to which my daughter was going, he was told that she had not been seen. He went to the police station, and they said they would telegraph around. I suppose the poor child was surprised by some man, and before she could recover from her fright, was overcome. Her father walked about the neighbourhood until two o'clock in the morning, but we never heard anything about her until Saturday when the police came. After Millie's body had been given a post-mortem and suspicions were gathered surrounding her death, so began the next stage of the investigation, which was the coroner's inquest. However, there is still quite a lot of this story to reveal, and as such, I think it's best if we do a part two and continue with the tale next time, as there are still two other missing girls to speak about, and I want to make sure I get to share their stories with the amount of time they deserve. So... I'll be back next time with part two of this intriguing case. Thanks for joining me for this episode. I hope I haven't left you on too much of a cliffhanger and I'll be back before you know it with part two of this story whilst you're here if you wouldn't mind leaving me a sacrificial comment and a thumbs up on youtube or a review and rating on your podcast provider then i'd be eternally grateful it really helps my channel grow and my content reach more people and i'm really trying to make this my career now so if you could help me then you'll win a lot of karma points from the universe and everybody needs those right you enjoy murder stories so you probably could do with a few If you're new around here and you've not yet subscribed or followed the show, what are you doing? I'd love for you to join the Ghoul Gang so you never miss a new episode. Also, if you do like the show and you'd like to support what I make to make sure it continues, then why not consider becoming a patron like these amazing top-tier legendary executive patron producers, Amy, Christina, Christoph, Kate, Kevin, Mary, Rose, Sally, Sam, Sarah, Teresa, Terry, V, and Veronica, and all of our other patrons too. Please check out the support me section in the show notes for more ways to help me in continuing to bring you the haunted history we both love, including my Amazon wishlist and one-off donation links if you just want to send a tip to help contribute to my coffee bill when I write these episodes. All support is 100% integral for me being able to continue making the show. And thanks from the very, very bottom of my heart for even considering supporting me. You're the absolute bestest. And don't forget to check out my merch as well at macabrelondon-shop.forthwall.com. The designs which are there at the moment will only be around for a couple more days. So if you've had your eye on something, now's the time to get it. Also, if you want a cheeky little discount off the merch as well, you can sign up to Patreon and £5 and up tiers get a nice fat discount, which definitely makes it worth your while. And you get access to all the lovely bonus content on Patreon too. So it's a win-win. Thanks for joining me for another macabre tale from London's past. I've been Nikki Druce. Remember to stay spooky. And I'll see you ghouls next time.